This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Everything Compliance is now the award-winning Everything Compliance, having won the top talk show in podcasting award by W3. In this episode, we have the quartet of Jonathan Armstrong, Jonathan Marks, Matt Kelly, and Karen Woody. We take a look at the sentencing of Joe Sullivan insider trading in the crypto world, the COSO fraud risk framework, and a recent report on whistleblower best practices. I know you'll enjoy this episode of Everything Compliance. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Everything Compliance. We have the gang back together today, starting with Jonathan Armstrong, Jonathan Marks, Matt Kelly, and Karen Woody. First of all, it's great to see you guys again. Thank you, John. And Jay. All right. We're going to do our usual east to west. Mr. Armstrong, you've been intrigued by actually an event in America and wondering how it might apply to both the United Kingdom and the EU. Why don't you tell us what's got you so intrigued? Yeah, we're returning to the case of Joe Sullivan. So I think we mentioned it previously back in the fall or autumn, as it's properly known. And this effectively concerns the conviction of the former CSO of Uber. So for those of you who didn't follow the story originally, he was convicted on October the 6th. He was, as I've said, at Uber. They had a ransomware event in 2016, and they paid the threat actors $100,000, And they effectively masked the fact that it was a ransomware payment by paying it out of the bug bounty fund. So a fund that had been pre-authorized for people to tell them of faults in their code, etc. And they also made the bad guys sign an NDA to say that they wouldn't tell anybody what was happening. Now, by the way, I just mentioned in passing that things like that are standard demands from threat actors these days. We've had some fascinating documents released, for example, of a approach to Royal Mail after they were ransomware, attacked via ransomware, where the threat actors even offer a package of things, including computing what the GDPR fine would be so that they can prove that they're offering good value and offering an audit report for the organization to show where the security liabilities lay that were exploited. So my point being, it's not just a one-way street. Sometimes threat actors themselves are suggesting things like written agreements or audit reports in that slightly bizarre world of threat actors trying to show that they're somehow good guys. But in any event, Sullivan uh, made this payment. It was shown to be a bug bounty in their accounts. And it seems that the CEO, Travis, the then CEO of Uber, Travis Kalalnik, was in on it as well. And more on that later. And what then happened is the Uber were talking to the US authorities over their security stance. Sullivan didn't tell the US authorities that they'd already made a payment. He did tell the new management when they came in after Travis left the organization and they dismissed him in 2017. In 2020, he was charged and as I've said, he's subsequently convicted for obstruction of justice and misprision of a felony. 
Now, he was sentenced earlier this month. And first of all, I thought I'd discuss briefly the sentence and some lessons from that, and then just general lessons for compliance officers. Because I think this isn't just a CISO thing. It isn't just a CSO thing. It isn't a CIO thing. I think that in many cases, chief compliance officers, people who interact with any form of authority could potentially find themselves on the wrong end of the same type of action. And the penalty, I think, for Sullivan is probably somewhat lenient. He was sentenced to three years probation and a fine of $50,000. By the way, he's appealing, it seems, both his conviction and his sentence. But the interesting thing here is that the judge said that this was definitely a one-off and that if he saw similar cases, people could expect jail time. Sullivan had got 186 letters of support from people saying that he was an outstanding pillar of the community. He now works, I understand, full-time on Ukrainian relief efforts, and all of his good works, including his time in public service, were factored into that somewhat lenient sentence. But the judge said, if I had a similar case tomorrow, even if the character is that of Pope Francis, they shall expect custody. He also said that he was somewhat surprised not to see Travis Kalanick in court and said that he thought that he was at least as culpable as Sullivan was. And we've had both the DOJ and the FTC talking tough as a result and focusing on liability for individuals. Now, we've seen that over in Europe as well. Regulators tend to think that sometimes corporations don't take things seriously if you just find them because they regard that as a cost of doing business. And increasingly, regulators are trying to get that connection with an individual. It's happened in tech worlds for many years. Some people remember the chief privacy officer of Google, for example, being faced with criminal consequences in Italy. It's still happening. There are some cases brewing at the moment. And as I've said, individuals from top to middle are definitely liable to this type of action against them. And so what can chief compliance officers, what can compliance officers do to cover their own back, if you like? I've thought of six things. Maybe people will think of others. Obviously, due diligence. If you're going into a new role, then do your due diligence. That's going to involve things like background checks on your prospective employer. You don't want to find out something on day one or day 10 of your job that you could have known by doing your research ahead of time. Secondly, I think you have to negotiate hard on your own contract. That has to include things like the right to knock on doors and open closets to see if there's anything nasty in it. And then we've talked before about things like noisy withdrawal or silent withdrawal, but the right to get out if there's something there that you don't like. Thirdly, I think look at DNO insurance. Obviously, for criminal acts, that's going to be not the perfect solution. But I think you do, if you are going to be treated as a executive or part of the controlling mind or whatever in a corporation, then you Shearer's eggs are eggs, want to be insured and want to have the same protections as the CEO if you're potentially going to stand alongside him or instead of him in the dock. And then I think the other three things I'd say are the three R's really. Rehearse. Any type of event is inevitable. Ransomware for most corporations is inevitable. Rehearse your reaction. Rehearse your response. Make sure that you're resourced appropriately. So too often, I think, compliance officers are given 
big briefs and big tasks and then told they can have two or three relatively junior people to help them. That's not going to be enough for any corporation of substance. And you potentially might need the help of external advisors here as well. That's one of the things that comes up from the Sullivan case that Sullivan, I think, didn't feel or didn't have the resources to check with other people to do a sense check. And there was evidence that effectively, because he was a lawyer, even though he wasn't performing the function of a lawyer, he was, if you like, under-lawyered himself in that he didn't get the resource he needed, it was alleged, from the company's legal team because he was regarded as having an equivalent qualification. But we have a saying over here, the lawyer who represents himself has a fool for a client. And I think that's certainly the case with compliance officers as well. Even if you are a lawyer, then you sometimes need that extra check and balance and a sense check from somebody else. And then my third R is remuneration. And this might be that I'm not going to say what you think I'm going to say. Obviously, you've got to re be remunerated in accordance with the risk that you're facing. But I think people are going to be more vulnerable when their remuneration depends on things that they can influence, e.g. stock price. So if your remuneration and your bonus is heavily related to the performance of the company, then in some respects, you've got a conflict there. You, it, in Sullivan's case, it might be in his interests to bury bad news because he might have stock options which would sink if the news got out. And so you've got to look carefully at your remuneration when you're going to a job like this. I think authorities are going to be more critical of you when you've buried something or not taken steps to make public something you've gained as a result. We're getting close, of course, to Martha Stewart-type territory, aren't we? But I think you just need to be careful about exactly how you're getting paid for the hard work that you're doing. Matt, you had a comment, I think. Yeah, Matt. Now, first of all, I have to ask, does your comment okay. relate to the swimsuit issue? Mine does not, no. Okay. Jonathan, I would just wanted to say, I, I do not have much sympathy for Mr. Sullivan here for a couple of different reasons. The facts around this case are not flattering to him. For example, this was a ransom payment, and then he told the company, cover that up. Bill it as a bug bounty where you might pay somebody who, through their own benevolent interest, tells the software company, we found a flaw in your software, you should fix it, and then they'll say, thanks for the tip, here's a certain amount of money. That's what a bug bounty program is. This was not that. This was a ransomware payment, and then Sullivan turned around and said, cover that up. That's a books and records violation, full stop. And if somebody in the FCPA world proposed something like that, we'd laugh them out of the room. So in a lot of ways, I like I see this why a lot of compliance officers and CISOs are anxious about Sullivan's case. But he is not a good protagonist for the story they're looking to tell here that they're being unfairly punished. I don't know that he wasn't unfairly punished. And never mind the fact that he's not going to jail. He didn't get actual prison time. But I am also curious, if, Jonathan, maybe if you could unpack a little bit more about the misprison offense, where I do think compliance officers have to worry about that because misprison is you are not confessing to a felony that you are aware of, that you're not involved in. You don't have any criminal liability here, but you know that a felony is happening and you're keeping your mouth shut. I could easily see compliance officers on the wrong end of situations like that where you know about an FCPA violation or you know about some sort of collusion or procurement fraud and the CEO tells you, shut up, don't tell anyone about this. Is that going to be misprison now? Are we going to be faced with that sort of a risk? It was enacted during the Washington administration in the 1700s, a little bit odd that we're using it now for a ransomware issue, but here we are. So I do think there's a lot for compliance officers to think about here. I just think Sullivan in particular, dude, cry me a river for what you did. And that's that. 
I think there are some interesting bits about that, aren't there? And I think one of the things that's a running theme of this case is it is alleged he went and told the CEO. I think one of the 186 letters is from the former CEO. And part of you thinks he would write that letter, wouldn't he? I think the difficulty for compliance officers is quite often in things like this, they won't be the lead actor, if you like. And yet, as you rightly say, you can't be in the room where bad things happen and necessarily escape liability. Nor can you think the guy at the head of the table was the guy primarily responsible. And yet, if the prosecutors choose to go against everybody else and not him, you can't really say he was more culpable, therefore I'm not guilty at all. So I think that's one issue for compliance officers for certain, that sometimes they might not be the primary actor, but could still be in difficulty if they see something and don't say something. And I think the other thing maybe to consider is, in ransomware terms, 2016 is the time of the Roman Empire, in in terms of it is so distant. Now, of course, ransomware is very different. Many of the ransomware threat gangs are sanctioned. Some of the ways in which they move payments are also sanctioned. And it's an even more dangerous world, I think, if you're paying ransoms now than it was in 2016, not only because of this prosecution, but also because of the very real risk that you might violate sanctions rules as well. All right. Jonathan Marks, you, I don't know how long you were working on a project, but you were part of a team that had a major project come to fruition in the last couple of weeks, and that's the COSO framework for fraud risk management. I was wondering if you might be able to generally outline for us what your role in that was and what you think of the final product. Yeah. So a little sort of revisionist history here. COSO revised its original framework in, for everybody in 2013. The COSO 2013 framework incorporated 17 principles, and the 17 principles are associated with five internal control components and really are designed to provide clarity to the user in designing and implementing systems of internal controls. Everybody you know that's using COSO should understand that. The Fraud Risk Management Guide, which was originally published in 2016, which I did not have any part of, was intended to be supportive of and consistent with that framework, that 2013 framework, and serve as guidance for organizations to follow in addressing specific fraud assessment risks and things like that. However, as we all know, fraud is not static. And according to COSO and the ACFE, we went through this update process and they reached out to me and asked me for my input. I was happy to go through the 2016 guide and all of the materials that I've had subsequent to that and provide my input there. It was uh, it was an arduous process, I must say. Linda Schwartz, who's a dear friend of mine, played a key role in, in helping me and the AICPA provide that guidance. That I did this under my role with the AICPA Fraud Task Force. And my hope was in, in being a part of this, that I was providing people with some new and different thinking that was, I think, more in tune with what's going on today and to cement and solidify myself with regards to some of the things that I have created over my career. And hopefully they start to glom on and allow people to in the, to better manage the fight against fraud. That, that was really my role. I was shocked and somewhat pleased with regards to how much of that material actually did get included. And that's something that I'm pretty proud of. I hope that the readers out there that get a chance to to go through the fraud risk management guide, glom on to some of these new things and use those in, in, again in their fraud risk management program and their fight against fraud. I'd like to start off by asking you, is this a framework that a fraud risk manager, a chief compliance officer, a head of internal audit, whoever might be utilizing it, can take to the board and explain to the board, not simply the fraud risk management strategy, but the board's role in that same strategy? I think so, Tom. And you have to remember, performing periodic fraud risk assessments is an important element of not only good governance, but is really foundational for a compliance program. And if for those of you that have read prior COSO publishings and use COSO as your framework, it is a COSO 2013 requirement. And if 
you start to run through the process of going through what the components are here, all the 17 principles and what's entailed in there. They're very useful from a compliance perspective. I think they're also very useful for a board to understand from a monitoring and oversight perspective. And so while principle eight focuses more on fraud and fraud risk assessments, the other principles in there really do address certain other key issues that can be mapped to certain things within the organization that I think if you're looking at this from an enterprise-wide fraud risk assessment perspective, which I believe is one of the key components of a good governance, overall governance framework, then I absolutely believe that this could be something that present, that can be presented to the board in a functional way and also in a visual way where they, where they will understand you know, what is required and what is entailed and hopefully incite conversation and questions to management, including the chief compliance officer, the chief audit executive and the like. Um, to make sure that they're on top of, of what's going on within the organization related to fraud risk and other risks within the company. Matt, do you have a question or comment for Jonathan? J- just mostly a comment, I suppose. Number one, I've read the executive summary and I'm working my way through the full document and they're both well worth an audit or compliance executive's time. But I really did, number one, like the message that strong capable fraud risk management is itself a fraud deterrence. And that's a big theme that this calls out, this guidance. So for anybody trying to wonder, why are we supposed to do this? Why does this matter? Because it is really a deterrent to fraudsters if they see it, that fraud risk is being taken seriously. But also, I and Jonathan, I'd welcome your thoughts on this too. I'm struck that fraud, as I've said before, like fraud seems to be having a moment these days that we had the top accountant at the SEC put out a statement last fall saying companies and audit firms have to do better at assessing fraud risk. And then the PCAOB published its list of inspection priorities, what it's going to be looking at audit firms for this year, what do audit firms have to do well? And at the top of that list was fraud, basically because they said the external environment for fraud risks is changing and pushing fraud risk to a greater degree. So audit firms have to be more on their game. And now we have this, like you turn around in this business and somebody somewhere is putting out more discussion of fraud. And it just seems to me it's a good thing, but it's a notable thing. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think a lot of that has to do with maybe the pandemic and the level of skepticism that is applied to certain engagements. I think that has a big part of it. It plays a big role here. I also think that complexity also plays another role and obviously the economic underpinnings. I think there's a confluence of events that have transpired over the last three or four years where, you know, somebody's looking at this and if you're looking at root cause and you're saying, how did this happen? Controls aren't being designed effectively to deter or detect or prevent fraud. I think that's a, that's another key theme here. That's that underlying theme. But uh, when you look at organizations, it's, it's much, we've been facing this for a long time. You try to get an organization to update or even do a fraud risk assessment or understand what fraud risk management is. And uh, sometimes it's, just, it's like literally pulling molars out of your mouth. And I think the message is being sent pretty loud and clear that this is something that really should, you know, if you're a board member, you should really be paying attention to. And number two is if you're an organization, you don't have one of them here. Um, it could mean, uh, we've all talked about this a gazillion times. How do you have a compliance program and not understand what your risks are, especially your fraud risks? And, and I have a great example. I was on the phone yesterday with a client. The last time they updated their fraud risk assessment is 2008. Wow. That should tell you everything you really need to know about, you know, why I think fraud's having a moment. But I also think that if you look at what's going on around us and some of the organizations that are experiencing some of these things. It is up, fraud is up. And there are some very wicked trends that are out there. You know, not only third-party risk management from an FCPA perspective, but vendor fraud is through the roof. Treasury fraud is through the roof. Revenue recognition fraud is really gaining steam. Collusion between internal and external actors is something that we keep seeing. ESG fraud has really made its mark now and coming onto the landscape. Segregation of duties with regards to people's roles and responsibilities and not being in an environment where everybody's in the office and now people are remote. Some of those things have gone away, haven't been revisited since the pandemic. I already talked about internal controls being properly tuned, but, and then access to systems, people's access to systems. When the pandemic hit, everyone was like, oh, we'll make an exception. We'll let you in here. You can have access to this and all this other kind of stuff. I see a real increase in intellectual property theft and some other things that are just, I think, 
based on what I'm seeing, it, again, there, there's a reason why there's a fraud moment. Johnson, let me pick up on something you said and ask, where should the fraud risk management in a corporation sit? Should it be in compliance? Should it be an internal audit? Should there be a separate fraud risk section? How would you suggest a corporation think through where that function should sit? I think it all depends, but I think you really have to look at the key players and who the key players are with regards to building that fraud risk management program. When you look at fraud risk, you look at, you mentioned this before, but the external auditors play a role, the internal auditors play a role, management employees certainly play a role as the first line of defense. The board of directors, the audit committee, legal and corporate and compliance certainly play a role here too. Where it actually sits, that's always been debatable. I think as long as you have a process that's independent and that is robust and thorough and broad enough to really grasp not only the enterprise, but the extended enterprise, I think it really comes down to how you're structured and the nature and of the individuals that are doing this and their particular qualifications. You know, sometimes I see it sit in internal audit. Sometimes it's in compliance. Sometimes there's a special fraud or fraud or a controls group that has responsibility for it. So I'm not so sure that's really the really, really where I would focus on. When I look at an organization, I'm looking at their fraud risk management program. I'm really looking at who's leading the effort, who's participating in the effort, how's that information being gathered and then eventually reported to the board. I think if you have those components at a minimum, then I think you're going to have a process that is is thorough and robust enough to at least capture, not, you're never going to get it all, most of what I would consider to be fraud risk. Matt Kelly, we recently had a whistleblower report released. What about this report caught your eye? Yeah, so this actually was a survey, a benchmarking survey report that came out just this week. It was a joint project of the Institute for Internal Auditors and the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. And they polled their membership worldwide. They got about 1,600 valid responses, so a nice, good, sizable sample pool. Looking at the characteristics of whistleblower hotlines and what makes them good, what makes them bad, how many people thought that their programs were effective or not. And it is a fascinating document. I would recommend any compliance or audit executive read it. If you are thinking about your whistleblower program and how to make sure that you are implementing good practices for an effective hotline program, which by the way, let's remember that's what you want. That's what the Justice Department is crystal clear is very important for a successful com compliance program. I'll throw out a couple of interesting statistics first and then get to some of what I think are the big themes here. Number one, and this surprised me, is that the group most likely to be in charge of the hotline is actually the internal audit program, which was cited by about 42% of respondents. And in second place was the compliance program with 36%. Now, maybe this is just because they were polling audit professionals and they'd get a different answer or not. But at the moment, at least according to this report, internal audit people are the ones usually in charge of the hotline. I will pause here to let all of our compliance officer listeners throw up in their mouth a bit at that prospect, but that's what it says. More than 80% of companies have hotlines that offer multiple intake channels. That's wise. 28% of them offer four or more intake channels, which I'm not even sure I can count more than about four or five, but there were some who offered as many as seven intake channels, which I guess would be phone and web and text message and carrier pigeon and maybe a few others. Only 16% said their hotlines were not very effective. That's good news compared to more than I think 75 or so who said it was at least moderately effective, if not excellent. That's great. But here's the other thing that I thought about that really struck out to me. The big themes here are that if you want a program that is rated highly effective, that seems to correlate with the amount of trust that people put in your hotline and the accessibility of it. Now, I know that might be a bit self-evident when you think about it, but I think then the next question for compliance officers would be, okay, if we need to have a trustworthy hotline, if we need to have an accessible hotline, what does that actually mean? What are the structures that we have to put in place at our program to get that? And you can see some of it in this report. So for example, if your company 
allows an external party to manage the hotline, uh, then you're much more likely to be rated as a highly effective program. Whereas some companies, not many, but some did say that they managed their program internally and they had much higher percentages of people saying, and also it is a poorly run program. It is not effective. That makes sense. If you know as an employee that you're going to use the hotline, but a fellow employee, maybe a manager is going to get my hotline tip. I don't know that I like that. Maybe they're going to use that to retaliate against me. Maybe they're going to figure out who I am. So that degree of impartiality by outsourcing the hotline, that increases the trustworthiness that somebody somewhere will take it seriously. It correlates to a more effective program. Anonymous reporting. There are at least some companies out there that still don't allow anonymous reporting. It's not many, and they're usually not North American companies, but they're out there. And that correlates to a weaker program more often. But it's things like that. It's do you have clear policies about confidentiality? Do you have clear policies about anti-retaliation? Does the CEO get up and say that we have a zero tolerance policy for retaliation? And every time the answer was yes, then also those respondents said, and our program is highly effective. Those numbers were much, much higher. And then the much the same around accessibility, the more mechanisms you had, the more often you were going to rate your program as highly effective. And that was a clear linear correlation. You had three mechanisms. You were more likely to be better effective than only one mechanism to report. But if you had the seven mechanisms, you were more likely to say it was a good program than the people offering only three or four. It just kept on going up and up. And also, if the hotline program is available 24 hours a day, points back to outsourcing it. Is it Does it field reports in multiple languages? 49% of respondents actually said no, they don't. They only can take whistleblower reports in one language. I'm not sure who those people are, but again, I suspect that they are in immature markets such as Africa or Latin America, because I think the Justice Department would have a serious conversation with a Western company that only had one language for a hotline. But there's an awful lot in there that lets you get a good sense of what your hotline program should be doing so that it is more likely to be highly effective, what correlates to a bad practice. And it's just a good, useful document. I would recommend to anybody, track it down. It is available for free from the IIA or the ACFE. And there's a lot of good knowledge in there that you could put to use to improve your hotline operations. Any questions or comments for Matt? All right. Karen Woody, welcome back. First of all, great to see you with the gang. What has caught your interest recently? Unsurprising to many. It's insider trading again. By the way, I'm thrilled to be back with the gang. I should start with that. This is fun. It's always a great time. Okay, today I'm going to talk a little bit about insider trading, but insider trading in the crypto space, which has made headlines of late. So the first case I want to talk about involves Nathaniel Chastain, who was just sentenced, or sorry, he was just convicted by a jury on May 3rd, so just in the last couple of weeks. What did Nathaniel do? What he did was to trade or essentially front run NFTs, so non-fungible tokens. These are essentially works of art that are traded on a blockchain. So they're crypto-ish. I guess they are. They're in this sort of that space. Obviously have not been determined to be a security, but they're a thing of value. And so what Nathaniel did is he worked for a company called OpenSea. He was the product manager there. Uh, and what OpenSea would do is that they would highlight certain NFTs, so these certain works of art. Truly think of the gorilla, the ape, whatever, that kind of thing. There's certain NFTs that particular website would promote or highlight. And Nathaniel knew in advance which ones the his employer or the website would be featuring on their homepage. And of course, when they're featured, these certain works of art, the value jumps So he front runs that by buying those, knowing which ones would be highlighted by the website and then turned a profit. I think all told he made about $57,000 on this, which is actually another interesting wrinkle in this case because he would, it's one of his arguments here 
and said he didn't actually make any money because all of this is just in, in the ether. So there's no actual dollars changing hands. So that's one of his arguments in defense. So this is dinged as insider trading. There are a few big questions that arise here. Is this insider trading at all? And then the other big question is there aren't securities here. This is not, you know, this has never been determined to be any trade in securities, which was certainly one of his defenses as well. The way that the government gets around that security problem is that they simply charge wire fraud. So rather than charging this as a 10B5, which usually we see for insider trading, that's the most likely charge that you'd see. Instead, they just skirt that entirely and charge simply a wire fraud charge. Through the use of mail or wires, you have a scheme or artifice to defraud someone. So that's it. Nathaniel eventually also gets dinged for money laundering as well here. Again, his argument is this isn't money. (laughs) So it's an interesting situation where we see what is clearly an attempt to regulate insider trading, but without using the insider trading statute. And this isn't the first time we've seen this. Recently, in fact, he was just sentenced, I think this week, we saw this with the Coinbase guy, I think his name is Ishan Wahi. He's a former product manager at Coinbase, as I mentioned. He just this week was sentenced to two years in prison after pleading guilty to, uh, in that case, conspiracy, again, to commit wire fraud, but a similar situation. He knew this idea that He was trading on confidential information about certain crypto assets or tokens that were about to be listed on Coinbase's exchange. So, of course, that jumps the value, that spikes the value of those particular tokens or crypto assets. So knowing that, he traded again before the price popped and made some money. Similar situations in terms of the factual scenarios here. Again, an allegation of insider trading without an insider trading charge, simply a wire fraud charge, or in Wahi's case, conspiracy to commit wire fraud because he was involved with his brother in doing this. And I will also, just because for those of you who haven't gone long on the Classroom Insiders podcast, I will highlight that there is another very important case that this lines up pretty directly with. That's a case out of 1987. It's called Carpenter versus United States. This is the first case where we see this sort of new attempt to create a new theory of insider trading through what's called misappropriation theory. So rather than trading in your own company's securities, you're breaching a duty to the source of the information. It's a new idea. But in that case, it was pretty similar. What was happening in Carpenter was some people who worked at the Wall Street Journal knew what the journal would publish the next day in this herd on the street column, which was analyst takes and other certain information that affected the market. And so simply trading on that information because they knew before the journal went to press on those particular companies, they were able to make money on, on sales of those companies. So that was totally novel and crazy in 1987 when that case came out because that wasn't really insider trading. What company are we getting inside information from? This is information that's owned by the Wall Street Journal. And that became really the crux of that case. Interestingly, in that case, Judge Justice Powell had retired. So it was an eight-person court at the time. And there was a 4-4 split on insider trading but an 8-0 holding on wire fraud. So it's the same situation, which is the government running into a wall about being able to prove this under 10b-5. And if you're interested, I have a long article about how much 10b-5 is actually harder to prove than some of these other ones, mail and wire. And not only that, they also are not charging securities fraud, which is the sister provision to mail and wire. It's the exact same language about what's prohibited, but involves a security. Obviously, here for these two cases, both OpenSea NFTs and Coinbase, no one has determined these are securities. So that's the first sort of everyone's outrage is this isn't even securities. Why is the government involved? This isn't insider trading. None of this is all the Wild West of all this crypto land. But I think we still are going back to basics here, back to wire fraud, which has been called by certain justices and academics, the Stradivarius or the Colt 45 of prosecutors, because they can always prove it. They can always use it. It is something that they're able to flex on, maybe outside of the congressional intent of that law, but it's a pretty bare bones law that even things like crypto trading on or NFT trading falls prey to a charge of that. Even if, like I said, not really insider trading, but yet insider trading just through the back door for that. 
So that I think is fascinating and interesting. Insider trading is a mess and it still has always been a mess and will continue to be a mess. And so I think this is a little bit cleaner, but it also makes a very wide net, I think, for mail and wire fraud and what activities are prohibited under it. So Matt, do you have a question or comment for Karen? I have one of both. And much like the former CISO at Uber, I don't have much sympathy for these folks either. But clearly, the one with the NFTs, he has access to material non-public information that he is then using for personal gain. That's got to be something. But I do think that all of this gets to a bigger issue that I've been very frustrated with crypto is we haven't actually defined what it is. And is it a security? And if it's not a security, then what is it? And I would argue, and I think Matt Levine at Bloomberg has also picked up on this, that if it's not a security, then cryptocurrency is currency. It's money. Let's also pick up that the word currency is in the, the word, in the name. So if it is not a security that can be regulated by the SEC, I would assume, therefore, this is money and it can be regulated by the banking regulators at the federal and state level. And crypto people think long and hard before you want to step down that road because being regulated by the bankers is not a fun time. I like I just I can't believe that we actually even have this debate because Nobody I know actually goes and pays for anything in crypto. They don't go to an ATM machine to get crypto. They use it for trading and having fun with whatever wackadoo things that they're trading on. It's a security. I am putting a value in here, hoping that it will increase in value and I can take more out later on. What the hell else is a security? So that's just me being cranky. But also, he had material non-public information that he was exploiting for his own personal gain. It's just... I don't know what the way to theorize this is, but whether it's wire fraud or something else, it is not appropriate conduct. No, I think all that's fair. And that's why sort of everyone laughs at his, at least his defense around the money laundering charge was that he never converted it to dollars. Then it's a security. Exactly. So you're right. I take your point of you got to pick one poison or the other. But so it needs to be regulated. I do think it's interesting that we still are referring back to a nearly 100-year-old case of Howie to determine if that is what we decide as a security, which I think still applies, but it's just interesting that with this completely newfangled technology, we're still looking at a 1946 case about, do we think this is an investment upon which I think I will see some return upon, on, at the efforts of others? I think that's fair. Yeah, it's an interesting space to be in. And I think, you know, even the crypto regulator, crypto, people in crypto now are begging for some some clarification, but we'll see what happens. Mr. Armstrong, do you have a question or comment? Yeah, I think the one coin convictions are similar as well, other than Riva Ignasheva, who they still haven't caught up with. And I suppose what all of this illustrates is there's some good old fashioned shills disguised as technology offerings. One coin, the blockchain, ended up being an Excel spreadsheet on her brother's laptop, I think. And and it's whatever the modern words for caveat emptor, right. isn't it? All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are off to fan favorites of shout outs and rants. We'll keep the same order. I will get to bat fifth after Ms. Woody. Mr. Armstrong, do you have a shout out and or rant for us today? Yeah, it'll surprise you all to know, probably because of my opinions on the current administration and Boris Johnson and Theresa May, that I was somehow omitted from the coronation guest list. But I did walk around the mall the day before, and I just wanted to shout out to all the people who kept us safe and secure during that event. It was a veritable League of Nations. I saw a lot of American people camping out on the Mall the day before. There were 29,000 police, not only on the day of the coronation, but the day ahead of time lining the route. I got a, did get away from Prince William, so at least not everybody had forgotten about me. But just a splendid event and particular shout out to all those working behind the scenes to keep the event safe and secure. Mr. Marks? You're going to think I'm crazy. and That's probably true, which that's fine. But my, my shout out is actually a little odd this week. 
it goes to Bluebell Ice Cream. This will be good. And uh, they came out with a new ice cream flavor, which is Bluebell Ice Cream and Dr. Pepper for a float-flavored ice cream. So big, huge shout-out to Bluebell. I bet you that's not what you thought I was going to say, but... <laughs> Matt Kelly. I'm still stuck on the food scientist who tried to figure out a float flavored ice cream instead of just making an actual float. <laughs> Although with Dr. Prepper, that does sound kind of gross, but whatever. <laughs> I'm going to keep up with the good vibes and also have a shout out this time around. I wanted to note the passing of a great American, Newton Minow, who died the other week at age 97 who was the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission back in the early 1960s. And he was the one who famously coined the phrase that TV was a vast wasteland. And he said that in 1961. It is now even vaster and a lot of it is even more wasted. But he was the prescient one to come up with that phrase back then. Aside from that, I did know that he was instrumental in trying to get public broadcasting off the ground and was a big early supporter of shows like Sesame Street. I did not know he was also a big supporter of The Voice of America and other international outreach shows in, during the Cold War. I did not know he was a big supporter of satellite communications for television around the world, and yet he was. And then on a personal note, he raised three great children, one of whom is the now former head dean of Harvard Law. The Another one is Nell Minow, who is a corporate governance enthusiast and expert extraordinaire in her own right. And then also just to add to the charm of it all, Newton Minow was married to his wife for, I think, more than 70 years. And at one point, his daughter, Nell Minow, she posted a photo of both of them, I think, well into their 90s, still looking sharp and still looking delighted to be next to each other. Anyway, so now he is finally passed on at age 97, but he was a life well-lived and a great model for the rest of us. So farewell to Newton Minow. Karen Woody. All right. I am going to keep up with my usual, which is going to be some pop culture. I, I will say I almost gave a shout out to National Parks because I spent early half of this week in Glacier National Park, which was stunning. But I still have to come back to what I know best, which is some pop culture. And I... I can't say enough. This is the strongest Woody endorsement I could make. More even than Ted Lasso, which as we know, I was, I think, the kingmaker on that. But this new show, Jury Duty, on Amazon is the funniest. I think there's a half hour episodes and they're only eight or so. It is the funniest show I've ever seen. The premise is the guys who started The Office thought, wouldn't it be funny if only one of these people was real and the rest were actors. That's the premise of the show. Everyone on the show is an actor in the jury box except for one guy. So he just thinks this is wild and how jury duty usually goes. And it's not that far off. And But it is one of the most hysterical shows I've seen. And it's also very feel good. You have some hope for humanity after watching someone put up with some wild stuff in the course of being a juror. So highly recommend I'm going to continue the good vibes and I'm going to shout out to Mike Shannon. You probably don't know who Mike Shannon is. So let me tell you, Mike Shannon was an outfielder for the St. Louis Cardinals came up in 1959 and played until 1970. He was on three world series teams, hit home runs in each of the world series. The Cardinals were in, in the sixties. He got sick in 1970 and that sickness ended his baseball career, but he went into the broadcasting realm for the Cardinals. And for over 50 years, he was a radio broadcaster for the St. Louis Cardinals. So that's almost 60 years with one team. Pretty unheard of these days. But here's the real reason I want to shout out to Mike Shannon. In 60 years of attending baseball games, I've caught zero baseballs. So I have no signed baseballs by baseball players other than the ones I bought. But I do have one autograph, and that was Mike Shannon. When I was seven years old, I got him on as he was walking into the stadium and he signed my program. So to that seven-year-old boy who got one autograph, to a life well lived, to a, a life in Major League Baseball, I want to shout out to Mike Shannon and thanks for the autograph, Mike. What a great session. It's great to have the gang back together and I can't wait till we can get together again. Thanks, everyone. Thank, Thank you, Tom. Tom.
This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the award-winning Everything Compliance. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you will subscribe, rate, and review this episode wherever great podcasts are listened to. I've linked to all of the topics we touched upon in this episode in the show notes. So if you'd like additional information, I would urge you to check out uh, the reports, articles, and press releases regarding the topics from today's podcast. The gang will be back in a couple of weeks with another episode, so I hope you'll plan to join us again. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. The Compliance Podcast Network recently won five Communicator Awards, so I hope you will check out some of the award-winning podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network, including Data-Driven Compliance, The Coming Conflict with China, Never the Same, How Business Changed Forever, from the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the night sky to eclipses coming to Kerrville, Texas. This is Tom Fox. Thanks so much for listening. We look forward to visiting with you again.
This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. Have you ever thought about starting a podcast? Have you ever wondered if you could join the Compliance Podcast Network? We had some great new additions in 2022. And if you'd like to consider that or just talk to me about what it might take for you to start a podcast, I'd love to talk to you. We're always looking for new podcasts for the Compliance Podcast Network, the only network for podcasters in the compliance space. I hope you will join us again in a couple of weeks when we have the full Everything Compliance gang back again. I'd also like to shout out to my colleague Gwen Hassan. Gwen started the Hidden Traffic podcast about human trafficking, modern slavery, and issues surrounding those imbroglios that many companies find themselves in. Gwen not only won several awards in her first year as a podcaster, but she actually had the top two podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network for 2023. So congratulations, Gwen, and keep up the great work. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.